I wish I could put my fist through the whole clouds of Utah. Hello and welcome to episode lucky 13 of Lousy Beautiful Town, where we like to scream about Star Wars and put our fists through things. I'm one of your hosts, Jess, and I'm joined by your other host, Abby. Hello. Hello. We're also joined by a very special guest that we are very excited to have on today in continuing our, Abby, what are we calling this month? Make it gay? I don't know. I just kept calling it the month of gay. <laughs> month of gay. Yeah, there we go. Um, it is Dr. Annalise Ophelian, the director of Looking for Leia. Welcome. Thank you. I like, we're going to call it Star Wars, but make it gay. I'm here for that. Ooh. <laughs> yes. We'll get into a little bit more about um, Annalise in just a moment because we do have some news. Star Wars Celebration Anaheim dates were announced. Uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, officially August 27th through 30th, which is going to be balls hot. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's going to be in 2020 and tickets go on sale this Friday, which is wild to me. That is so soon. I'm not, I'm not ready. (laughs) No, my wallet isn't ready. No, neither is mine. Annalise, like you're filming on Friday. (laughs) I'm, I'm filming on Friday and I had a location scout today in which I had to explain to the director about why from 9 until 9.20 a.m. I would not be running the A camera. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to be in a corner with my phone getting celebration badges for myself and all of my crew and, um, yeah, going down at the end of the sentence and and being very just like, oh no, there'll be a break. There's like, like work this into the the cruise sheet where there's, there's the call sheet. There's gonna be a break for me from this period of time. If B camera wants to like monitor everything, you can keep rolling, but I won't be there. You got height to do height and professionalism. This is clearly not a Star Wars or geek related project, and I'm just like, I got a thing. <laughs> I got a thing about some stuff. I'm gonna have yeah. to step away for 20 minutes. <laughs> Hopefully it's just 20 minutes. God. Yeah. So tickets go on sale. And then I think the hotel block goes up either the oh, same Jesus day Christ. or like shortly. It's 10 a.m. the same day. I know oh because I'm God. also, I've, I've had to outsource that because I can't step away from the, from the shoot <laughs> twice. For two hours. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to happen. <laughs> oh my God. That stresses me out. Um, I'm excited. It's local to me. Um, sorry, mm. you guys and everybody else that doesn't live down here in Southern California. I'm San Francisco. I have an easy commute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey, we went to Chicago and we suffered through snow and your crazy ass oh, weather. Suck it up. Yeah, we went to Hoth, so there's no complaint. Oh, it wasn't even that bad. <laughs> I walked around in a jean jacket and I was oh, fine. There was sideways snow. <laughs> Welcome to Illinois. <laughs> oh my God. No, thank you. No, it was fun. It was fine. It was an experience. <laughs> Okay, the next item of news that just dropped today. So, yay, thank God we're Woo. recording today. Um, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but Michelle Rejwan was announced as the Senior VP of Live Action Production and Development. Um, she, it, she was one of the producers on The Force Awakens, and she's going to be a producer on um, The Rise of Skywalker as well. She's worked on other projects with J.J. Abrams. So, basically, she's going to be in charge of Disney plus content, like live action content is really cool. And um, Annalise, we were talking kind of before, before we started recording about like how she's, uh, you were saying how she's like one of those women who supports and lifts up other women. 
Yeah, I mean, she's had a really amazing career trajectory. I think that also, um, you know, she started as she started as an assistant, and I think it speaks. Mm. We, we, I think the auteur school of filmmaking likes us to believe that there's a director and they make a movie, but actually, the director is there to just help. You know, a whole bunch of people make a movie, and directors' assistants and producers' assistants are really the folks who are making so much happen. And that was her role. She was like a assistant to J.J. Abrams on Super Eight, and from that. That, um, you know, what we would consider kind of humble beginning in a very short period of time has moved into these incredible power positions. But she's also one of these women who's very like women hire other women, like give each other the the chance to work, bolster each other's IMDb filmographies. And so it's a, it's a great hire. I'm super excited for her being in that spot. That's yeah. really, really exciting. Um, I hope she gets some women of color on mm-hmm. some of these projects <laughs> yeah. very quickly and maybe some queer people as well. We need them. Yes. Good Lord. We need them. Um, Abby, you put the Lego star Wars thing <laughs> in here. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what that is. So. <laughs> um, at E3, they announced that Lego star Wars, the Skywalker saga is coming in 2020. Um, and this was the only thing I ever care about because I love, the Lego series of video games. They make my heart smile because they're just so cute and quirky and I love them. And so I was very excited to see this. Um, Plus I just got a Switch. So I'm like, yeah, give me more (laughs) games for my Switch. (laughs) Nice. So yeah, that was a little self-indulgent. Is that the only Star Wars game pretty much that came out during E3? Other than the ones that we know of that are kind of here already? Jedi Fallen Order. Yeah, well, we're not talking about that mm. one. Yeah, no <laughs> one cares about those. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I've never played any of the Lego games. Maybe I'll have to play you them. You would love them. I feel like you would really like them because they're just so charming. Yeah, I feel like they'd be super whimsical and silly. Yes. Oh, they're so silly. Like, they're just like, you think of all of the dumb shit that you hate about Star Wars, and then you play this game, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's this is why I like Star Wars. See, that's where it's at. This is what games should be for Star Wars, not being annoyed by the lead character. (laughs) (laughs) Our our amazing special guest that we're so happy to have today um, is the director of Looking for Leia. And Annalise, do you want to talk a little bit about Looking for Leia? I know you did like a big media rush about, what was that, like a year ago now? Oh my God, it's so long ago. Yes. <laughs> we're in we're in this kind of like acquisition limbo right now, which is, just feels very like, thank you everyone for paying attention to us, even though we have not given you a thing to watch for so, so many months. Um, so it's like everybody's imaginary friend right now. I feel like Looking for Leia is your imaginary friend. That's a collection of stories about women and non-binary fans of the galaxy far, far away and and all of the ways in which we tend to take our fandom and do really unique things with it. So it's very much a story, as a collection of stories that's about original creation and fandom. And uh, I think it's a refreshing look at fandom, particularly for those of us that are very involved in things like the, twi- the Twitter, <laughs> where <laughs> it can be a, a kind of very selective lens on the experience of fandom. And when you ask folks um, to tell you about a thing that they love and the ways that they love it, you get really interesting answers back. And um, so we are going to be uh, premiering this fall and we are simply getting ink on paper to dry to determine exactly where that will be um but the the um 
project is kind of gloriously wrapped up. We have people doing the rough cut reviews right now, which is really exciting. Oh and um, and we're very, I'm, I'm feeling really excited that like, especially in the lead up to the Rise of Skywalker, we're gonna be able to take a little break from talking just about content and talk more generally about, um, about fandom and about all the kind of really creative and amazing things that folks do in this fandom, which is a conversation we don't get to have enough of. That is, mm-hmm. I can't believe it's coming that soon. I know it's been like a <laughs> while. You for saying it's that soon because it's been a very long time. <laughs> I feel, I, but I don't know. It just, it still feels really soon to me. Like you have so much, you have so much stuff that you filmed. Like you're, ever, you've been all over the country, like <laughs> for yeah. a long, a long time. Getting mm-hmm. arguably too long. Arguably, there is there's too much footage. <laughs> but you know, you start talking to folks, and these stories are so good. Um, and in a way, every interview is a research interview, right? Every interview yeah. tells you more stuff. Um, and I'm highly, I guess I'm I'm feeling acutely aware of what it's like to do a pop culture documentary on an indie documentary schedule. So indie mm-hmm. docs are anywhere between, you know five and seven or eight years generally from um, conception to delivery. And that for pop culture simply doesn't work, right? I started filming, I I started filming after The Force Awakens. So The Last Jedi happened during filming (laughs) and all the conversations (laughs) and all the conversations. And, you know, we're not doing like content analysis or character critique because therein lies the road to madness. And so that's great. Like we, we managed to, I think, dodge a lot of bullets in what we're focusing on. But the, you know, the tone and tenor of conversations did change because the pop culture conversation has changed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that like, ooh, pop culture, it moves really fast. Yeah. <laughs> and indie documentaries, mm-hmm. not so much. So folks have been so patient and so supportive as we've been, as we've been finishing the project up. But yes, yeah, soon. Yeah. Oh my God, so soon. <laughs> Sweet baby Thor in a manger. It's coming around the corner. I think it just feels soon because I feel like I just saw you at Celebration. You were like still filming. So it still feels like it's going. It doesn't feel like you have a finished product. Yet. I know. <laughs> yes, we're just plugging in. We're just getting pretty at this point, which is great. Like, yeah, so I'm I'm running around getting like ADR from folks and you do you you make a for documentary in particular you you film everything and then you edit it all together and then you need to basically make the movie again in visual material because often people sitting and talking to you is not the most visually interesting thing and it's a visual <laughs> medium right as i'm always trying to remind myself um so i'm in the process of making it again <laughs> through through all of these kind of gorgeous illustrations and animations and we've got really brilliant women on the um on the team doing gorgeous art for us so that's that's where we're at right now i'm heartened by the fact that jj delivered the force awakens basically two weeks before it screened i think that that was in the can on december 1st it premiered on december 18th in 2016 (laughs) um or 15 and and so i'm like that's that's my production schedule we'll we'll have it it'll be in the can within 48 hours of its broadcast date i can guarantee that (laughs) living on the edge i love that's how we do (laughs) um do you feel like you have enough content to like make more than just the eight it was eight episodes right that you had six episodes actually is the um yeah i have enough i have enough content to tell star wars stories for um ever uh and and i hope to be able to do that actually i mean one of the things that soothes you as you edit because there's this whole kill your darlings moment that happens in editing where the things that i love the most are not necessarily the things that push a story fast enough or that work in the time you've got which in no way is a indictment on how great the stories are it's just you can you only have so many minutes 
And so I'm hoping to, and I'm packaging up actually as I edit all of these little, um, these, these one-offs and these shorts that we um, hope to be able to release alongside the, the sort of broadcast work so that people have access. It's basically like, if you like listening to this sort of stuff, we got you covered. We, we've got like mm-hmm. lots of really great stories. And that also helps me as I have to cut things to be able to be like, all right, it's not gonna just live in oblivion on my hard drive. It will, it will find, <laughs> it will find connection with folks. Cause I, I just, I adore hearing all of these folks speak. It's, it's just been great. Oh my God. I can't even imagine like having to feel like you're throwing something away. Like that's mm-hmm. good that you have yeah. that option. <laughs> you can't feel like you're throwing yeah. it away because it's, it's yeah. otherwise, yeah, then you just, then you never cut anything and you have like the little Dorrit of fandom docs where it's like eight and a half hours long and um, you feel like Shia, Shia LaBeouf is going to show up to your screening or something, right? Like it goes, <laughs> it goes horribly <laughs> off the rails into like deeply unprogrammable art at that point. Oh um, my God. <laughs> so funny. Like what not to do. That is really exciting that it's going to be here before. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so much. So, oh my God, we have the Mandalorian, we have Clone Wars, we have Looking for Leia, and then we have Rise of Skywalker, like all within like a, what, a four month period. That is, we are being fed. We are. <laughs> <laughs> you, I feel this way, right? Like, I feel like there's, I love the ramp up to the new mm-hmm. films. Um, and especially because we know we're not getting more films for a minute. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's something really nice about being able to say like, yeah, I'm just like, I'm going to ramp up for this. And I'm so excited about the Disney Plus programming, yeah. Um, yeah. especially as a person who does not like to leave my house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, yeah. Were you at the, Mad? did either of you go to the um, Mandalorian panel at Celebration? I did, yeah. Yeah. That footage yeah, was I awesome. <laughs> I was so excited about that footage. Yeah. Um, I was very sad that people that didn't get to go to that panel didn't really get to see the same stuff that yeah. um, that we got to see yeah, because it looks like, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> just shut up. I don't want to hear yeah. how great it was. <laughs> I know. I want everyone to see it. I wish they would just release it. I hate how like Disney and Lucasfilm gets all secretive about stuff like that. Just let people be excited. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The producer in me appreciates it because what happens and start, we know this about Star Wars fans, you release a thing and then every single frame of that thing is dissected oh, yeah. and analyzed. And when you're showing footage that's when you're still in production in the way that they are, um, or when you're in post-production in the way that they are, I have no doubt that we were looking at footage that was not the end footage, right? Right, right. And so, you know, we are, we already do this with teaser trailers where we analyze every little thing and then come up with theories and then God forbid it doesn't end up in the final film. We like have whole things about that. So, you know, we I think we bring a little of this on ourselves. <laughs> I think Lucasfilm learned from Rogue One big time. Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. like how the trailers and the teasers played out for that film and then how it was yeah. just completely changed and like we didn't get most of the cool footage that we saw in the right. trailers and the teasers um I think they've learned their lesson and they're like nope we're not doing that again <laughs> yeah which and it happens all the time actually I think oh, yeah. it's just different audiences have a different kind of tolerance for that and the Star Wars audience <laughs> is um you know this we are a terrifying fandom I say this and we I'm in are. love with Star Wars fandom and all I do is listen to great stories all the time but um, when I look at the way that we are in social media spaces in particular, in our most loving, passionate expressions on like the Twitter and such places, <laughs> I, as a media creator, I look at that, I think about myself releasing a piece of Star Wars related media, it's like Star Wars 10's gentle media. And I'm like, oh God, yeah, there's gonna be some like drinking and muting because I, mm-hmm. I want to be available for all the people I wanna be available for. But then you also know with that comes just, you know, tons and tons of 
folks who have so many things to say that are not necessarily constructive or critical or creative. And yeah. um, I don't know how you thread all that out. And Johnson is my hero. I'm like, I, however it is that you manage to deal with what you get on the interwebs. Um, I imagine he has a great therapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, a certain amount of resources, right? In the kitty, which is right. great. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Use that for good, not evil. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lots of Star Wars content coming this fall. We so, are very, yeah. we are very excited for looking for Leia. I know we are not the only ones that feel this way. Um, I know our listeners are excited. I know mm -hmm. many of our, most of our community, um, and our fandom is has been waiting with bated breath. <laughs> yeah, really. I had a really cool moment. God, I'm annoying and talk about Chris, boyfriend of the pod, too much on the pod. But <laughs> um, I had a really nice moment of it was it was on Saturday of celebration. And oh, because it was the Sisters of the Force panel, that's why. And I have two looking for Leia shirts the one of Padme about ask me about my feminist fan agenda, and then the Leia one as well. And I brought them both. And I was like, Chris, do you want to wear one of these? And he's like, Yeah, sure. And he's looking at the shirt and he's like, What's looking for Leia? And I explained it to him. Thank and you. he's like, That's so fucking rad. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. And also I love it when like, you know, guys and particularly cis guys mm -hmm. are really um, down with the project, you know, like that's, I think focusing yes. on a group that isn't you doesn't mean it's against you by a long shot. And so we love the guys that are fans of this project and that have been like huge supporters yeah. and have been flagging us with like bumper stickers and t-shirts and all mm -hmm. of that. That's awesome. Let's get to the kind of the main reason why we're here today. And being gay and doing crime <laughs> right that's i was about to say homosexuality <laughs> so i am going to step back from the conversation as I, am the, I am the token straight on the podcast today and i will let the two of you take it away the two queer identifying ladies here we have some very interesting things that we're talking about so yeah, when when Jess and I were kind of talking about like, okay, we're gonna have Annalise on. What do we want to talk about? Like, there's a million things we wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, but one of the things we definitely came down to was like respectability politics, um, and then specifically within the queer community because that's something that I feel like both Annalise and I can speak to in terms of our academic knowledge of it and our experiences with it and all of that jazz. I guess I'll just read the Wikipedia definition of respectability politics for those who don't know. <laughs> um, it's the attempts by marginalized groups to police their own members and show their social values as being continuous and compatible with dominant values rather than challenging the mainstream for what they see as its failure to accept difference. Which I feel like that's a decent definition. Good job, Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so who respectability politics tends within the queer community tends to benefit and that tends to be the white cis gays. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny. Like, I think about the um, historicism of the role of respectability politics in queer community. And of course, mm -hmm. this stuff is always complex, right? It's always complicated and complex. And, and I think that the 280 character culture does make us want to universalize mm -hmm. and shrink things down into like a nugget. Um, and so I think about like for me and this time of year in particular, I often think of these things. I think about like the Mattachine Society. I think about those early like homophilic organizations that were advocating for the rights of um, mm -hmm. primarily white cis gay men. 
And my actually my last feature, Major, which is a biographical documentary about this amazing um, civil rights mm -hmm. activist, Miss Major uh, Griffin Gracie, oh, yes. that's available on Amazon Prime. If folks want to watch it, it's like very good Prime. Uh, it's very good Pride uh, viewing, and you can get some Amazon Prime for free, so it doesn't cost you things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you trial membership, watch the film, do what you need to. Uh, but she was a part of Mattachine Society in the 50s um, and uh, early 60s before moving to New York, um, where she was then later involved in the Stonewall Uprising, right? So her trajectory and listening to her tell the story of what it was like to be a part of these early groups. And one of the things that they did was really try to gender normalize membership. Right. So and she would describe how they would try to get all the butch lesbians in skirts and have them hold handbags and they would try to like butch up all the cis gay men and like, you know, get everybody mm -hmm. to really show we are just like you. And the way we're going to get our rights is by being as heterosexual appearing as possible, because it's about the comfort of the dominant group and squashing our individuality. And, and, and so I think that there's a, a long history in queer communities and queer and trans communities of our liberation mm -hmm. being predicated on our palatability to heterosexual and cisgender um, powers that be. I'm just going to sit back with my rosé now. <laughs> <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> we all discussed before we got uh -huh. on this recording that it's been like a day. So I also like thank you both for being like, please wrap up your day by drinking some wine and talking with me about homosexuality and some Star Wars. It makes me very happy. So I have a I have a question about this because as mm -hmm. as an outsider I have as I am a woman of color and I have kind of like I have a lot of um queer white friends and I feel like they and I don't know if it's just the generation um because of like now it's I, and also maybe the communities that I grew up in like I grew up in southern California where it's a little bit more accepted here I just feel like everyone that I know down here that is white and cis and queer doesn't seem like mm -hmm. they seem fine with kind of being out and not as concerned as like falling into a certain category to be palatable quote. And I don't know if that's like white privilege or is that just like a cultural shift in the entire community? Mm -hmm. I feel like it could be like, <laughs> no, that's a really good question. I feel like it could be like a little bit of both. You know what I mean? Like the more straight people tend to insert themselves into the queer community, the more I think it just becomes part of the culture. Like you can't go to any gay bar without seeing some straight girl there being like, I just came here so the yeah. guys wouldn't hit on me or something like that. Or, um, <laughs> or any pride parade. Like, really, Pride has yeah. become oh, such yeah. a, like, overwhelmingly straight girl event. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that, because I've been to a lot of Pride events to, like, support my queer friends. Mm -hmm. But I, you're exactly right. There's a lot of straight girls that show up at these yeah. events, like, because they feel like it's a safe space for them, mm -hmm. too. I mean, I think about the, I think about geography a lot, right? So certainly on the coasts mm -hmm. and in cities, you know, in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, these places where it's just like, all right, you have, and, and you know, Atlanta, um, like there are places where you're like, I've got community that is here and has my back. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that one of the things that happens is that we conflate axes of oppression with other axes of oppression and white queers do this in like pretty spectacularly problematic ways and we I don't think we mm -hmm. saw this ever as we saw this really really blatantly around marriage equality um, mm -hmm. 
like when the marriage equality stuff, when you know, 2008 happened in California and Prop 8 passed and everyone, all these like queers started taking to the streets. And I've been, you know, I've been in the streets since 1987. So I was like, great, let's go to the streets. That's what we do. And we were looking around and I was like, wait, I haven't seen any of y'all. Like, I don't see any of you at any of the actions that I do. Who's coming out for these? But I was also thinking about gay folks. So I'm just like, you're not coming out when trans women of color are murdered. You're not coming out when people are being kicked out of their homes. You're not coming out for like um, the like all-inclusive civil rights le- legislation. Like you're coming out for the things that impact you. And then almost immediately the like racial analogies started coming up, right? It's not about, it wasn't about water fountains then and it's not about marriage now. And these really clunky ways of that I think white gays in particular do to mm-hmm. say, yes, my oppression is just like, um, is just like the experience of racism. It's just like these other mm-hmm. things. Um, yeah. And and so, yeah, like it's, this is part of what is complex about it, that I do think whiteness trumps all, everything else in this country in terms of a resource card. And, um, and so the kind of conversations that we're having when we talk about who's experiencing marginalization we have protective factors and we have the factors that are um you know like keeping us down that like hold us down neoliberal white folks do i think we're in this moment where like neoliberal white folks in particular like love being able to have queer and trans friends because it's like really exciting to be like yes i get you and i want to do the right thing Everybody's a collector. Right. And, and like, you know, there's levels on which that's great. And then I think you see it maybe even, uh, and you see it regionally, and this is not in any way to say that the big cities are somehow smarter or better than, because like people in San Francisco are terrible with they, them pronouns, right? Like you you see where mm-hmm. it starts eroding around the edges. But I, I do think that that like intersectionality, that sense of what's, what com- what's your combo platter? Like, where are the places where you're one up? Where are the places where you're one down? And in the aggregate, how does that impact your day-to-day experience is kind of the name of the game as we're trying to be thoughtful and think about how we how we present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> white queers particularly love to use their queerness to cover up, like, their racism mm, so and their transphobia and yeah. their um, classism and other shit like that. Which is like, I was reading a bunch of articles before we started, well, before I started working on the notes, just to kind of, you know, prep myself and all that jazz. And the more I was reading it, the more like that cut coming into my head was like, it was, it feels kind of like the gentrification of the queer community. Mm. Because here are a bunch of white gays, white cis queer folks who are coming in and becoming quote like the quote unquote voices of the queer community and silencing a lot of the people who started the queer rights movement or who have been instrumental within the queer rights movement um, and, and just completely ignoring the backs of which our community was built on like queer people of color, trans folks, trans women of color in particular, queer folks with a lower socioeconomic status. It's like all of a sudden you know, whatever we, you, you know, marriage equality is a wonderful thing. And I'm not trying to say that it's, it's not, but like, yeah, we got marriage equality. So I guess uh, black trans women dying in the streets by police officers isn't that big of a deal anymore. Or homeless queer youth, which is a huge problem. Like just turn a blind eye to it. 
And it's this year, like I feel like it's the increasing conversation is around the role of cops at Pride. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I'm seeing the most of in discourse this year. And I think about the, and also the corporatization of Pride and the way yes. that like every company now, like I mean, I'm a, I came out in 1987 and I, would never have believed in particularly the period between 1987 and 1993 that we would be in a moment where mainstream corporations would change their logos to rainbow flags for an entire month like that would have blown mm -hmm. my baby dyke self away and i would have been complicatedly really excited about it because in capitalism you know when the companies start paying attention to you that you're viable and there's something yeah. there right and it's like such a double-edged sword um but having lived in states where it was like illegal to be gay and they actively arrested you for it, like the cops would go to the bars and like raid, right? Having grown up in this environment, the I would have never expected the distance that we have traveled to have happened. Um, and there are so many in our community who have not had that same distance traveled. Um, and so I think about uh, the role of cops at Pride, and I think about la two years ago at, at um, Columbus Pride in Ohio, how the ironically named um, Stonewall Columbus called the cops in to bust up a peaceful protest that lasted under a minute in which black and brown, primarily trans activists in the area took a moment to try to stop the parade by joining hands across the street. And um, in observance of the number of times that uh, Philando Castile was shot, right? We're mm -hmm. gonna have a moment, we're gonna talk about Black Lives at Pride. And, the, and they were arrested quite violently and Stonewall Columbus pressed charges against them. And then we had to go through like two years of these incredibly vulnerable folks having to fight in a legal system that is absolutely not set up to do anything other than incarcerate black and brown bodies. And, you know, and we forget that the, you know, that the reason why we have pride parades at all is because black and brown folks were fed up with being beaten and harassed and profiled by the police that Stonewall mm -hmm. was a police riot. It was a riot by patrons yeah. against police profiling and brutality. And that's the reason why we have the season. I always like to think of us as queers as being like, especially magical this time of year, right? Like <laughs> this, is our, this is what our conjuring power is, the, like, you know, our bricks have extra magic this time of year because that's, <laughs> that's our like historical footing. And any action that is not, taking that into consideration. And particularly, I mean, these, these are the moments where I'm just like, hey, police, your job is actually to serve. Sit this one out. Like mm -hmm. humbly, humbly say, yes, we get you. We're gonna make sure to keep you safe and we're gonna keep a safe distance while we do it. And we don't, yeah. get, we don't get floats in this one. We don't get to show up in uniform. Um, we're, gonna, yeah. we're gonna step back. Like this is not actually a, a hard question and we're not, um, yeah, we're not dismissing folks by saying we, you actually need to kind of like, recognize the, the system this is on. But that's, I think, respectability politics, right? Is that like mm -hmm. last year, yeah. two years ago in San Francisco Pride, Apple sent their contingent down. So San Francisco Pride, right? This is also like, this is just a commercial for three hours. And the yeah. Apple contingent <laughs> was so long that at one point it took up the entire parade route. Jesus. Oh and it was God. straight people. It was like the Apple, it was like all of the Apple employees. And I'm like, welcome to my party. My people bled and died for you. I hope you have a good time. Enjoy the vodka. Yeah. And they took up the entire street. And we're all kind of looking at it being like, this is a good party. But at a certain point, it becomes not the um, 
it's not it's not my party anymore. It doesn't feel yeah. like it's actually centering my community. Um, yeah. And if I start saying things about that, then I become a grouchy queer, and that's where respectability mm -hmm. politics kicks in. That we can't actually push back against that without somehow being ungrateful or being rude or political or um, you know just just sort of like generally grumpy with the world. Yeah, it's that whole be happy that you that you get this at right. all. I, mentality. I feel like I've seen that a lot in the past couple of weeks of, you know, people being rightfully upset about the um, co-opting of pride, if you will, by corporate by corporations and people being like, you know, like, I get it. It's it is cool to see like, I don't know, Pepsi and Oreo <laughs> and all of these other corporate entities saying like, yeah, we're totally in favor of queer folks. And like, that's nice. But at the same time, it's to make a profit off of us. And so, like, I've seen so many people say that. And then that people being like, like you said, I, I think that to me, it brings up this idea that, like, you know, allyship is an active ally is an active verb. Mm -hmm. And the work of being an ally is actually, um, you know, it's challenging. And it is not about being rewarded. Like the work of being an ally is not about like, you're doing so good, sweetie, I'm going to give you a pat on the head <laughs> and a cookie. The work of being an ally and I and I'm like, absolutely, corporations, make your logos rainbow and like do your stuff. And then when we come at you and say, hey, so tell me about your, um, you know, trans inclusive healthcare policy. Tell me about the ways in which you give like, um, you know, childcare leave to, um, families that don't have traditional gender roles told me about like all the ways in which you show up and if you don't have good answers for that I'm going to press you on it and then the work is to be to say thank you right I mean I, I think anytime a marginalized group is pointing out a thing that a group that has power is doing that is contributing to marginalization they are doing us a spectacular kindness like that's a favor. That's like saying you've got spinach in your teeth. That's like saying like, <laughs> hey, you, you're messing this thing up. And the only answer to that is, oh, my God, thanks <laughs> like mm -hmm. for letting me know that. Let me fix that. Like, let me let me yeah. get to that um, instead of that. Like, no, I'm not. And the like yeah. knee jerk reactivity of like, but I'm but I'm trying to, so hard to do this thing. Or, you know, as white women like to do crying. Um, yeah. yeah. Like where like those are not <laughs> invitations to to make it about you. Those are invitations to take that feedback, which you should really actually also then pay a consultation fee for because that's yeah. labor to give feedback <laughs> and, and incorporate that into your way of doing business. I feel like the really important thing in there, aside from the thank you, um, is let me fix that yeah. and not being like, will you teach me more? Boy. Because I mean, like some people might be down for that. Like, sure. Okay, whatever. I'll, I'll provide you with some resources. But at the end of the day, it's not a marginalized person's job to teach you about their marginalization. It's not their job to kind of, in, in some ways, for some people, re-traumatize themselves um, by talking about their experiences of oppression and marginalization just so that you, a quote-unquote ally, can get it. Um, Google exists for a reason, and you can have the world of knowledge at your fingertips in less than 10 seconds. So, you know, Google is free. <laughs> and in fact, it is some people's job because they are like actually professional consultants, right? And like on that sure. sense, on the sense that someone is like, you know, you pay for that because that's labor. And because, you know, mm -hmm. gay capitalism, when a thing is worth something, we pay for it. And, <laughs> you know, like everyone who is expected to do free labor is so acutely aware of the way that free labor comes, like the diminishment of your value is baked mm -hmm. in to being asked to do a thing for free. So pay for it. Amen. 
<laughs> I don't have a PayPal, but I'll set one up if you ask me to explain my shit to you. <laughs> Some rando gave me a dollar in Cash App the other day, oh. which I don't know whether to be insulted by that or like. <laughs> I don't know. One dollar. One dollar seems that's that's its own <laughs> communication. <laughs> I was very I I was very confused by it, and there was no reason. It was just a dollar, so I put in my checking account and I nice. bought. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I had, um, we just had Star Wars Rip Matters Day um, on fr- this past Friday, which was awesome, um, even though I didn't get mm-hmm. to be super active because, fuck, having a new job and, like, finding work-life balance is really hard, mm. <laughs> especially when you're a mental health clinician and you're going home and thinking about all Anyway, um, I need to go back to therapy is basically the answer. Um <laughs> Hey, therapy. I was just complaining that people got mad at me for saying, stop calling yourself an ally if you don't act like one. <laughs> of course people get yeah. mad at you. <laughs> this, was a, this was a weird Rep Matters day, let me tell you. we got yeah? some, There was a lot of weirdness going on. I blame the moon. <laughs> it is a full was moon it? today. Oh, shit. I think yesterday and today. That's why yeah. sucks. Yeah, I know. Damn moon. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, I do want to answer one question that you, Emma, and Lynn oh, had yeah. on the last episode about do the straights know that there's like a whole fashion thing going on in the gay community? No, we have no <laughs> idea because I was told recently that I dress like a lesbian because I wear flannel and Birkenstocks mm-hmm. and yeah. joggers. Check, check, and check. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And band okay. t-shirts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, had no idea. Um, we have no idea. <laughs> we are ignorant of, I mean of I guess everything. it makes sense because like <laughs> on Fridays at work we have jean day um which is which is kind of nice and I only own high-waisted jeans because I'm bi and that's what we do oh, no, I, own waist- I only I only own high-waisted- are you sure you're straight Jess? <laughs> I get asked this all the time I don't know anymore <laughs> but I wear my high-waisted jeans and I always tuck my shirt into my jeans either full way or like do a french tuck or something like that and like everybody's always like abby like you you always look so cute why do you always tuck your shirts in like that's so cute or abby why can't you sit properly on a chair and it's just like i'm by bitch like <laughs> you want me to say? oh yeah straights have mm. no idea we're clueless mm. unfortunate straights <laughs> that's hilarious the poor unfortunate straights <laughs> 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 Which is perfect because my wine glass says Tears of Fortunate Souls. Oh, nice. Ooh, yeah, I got that from the Disney store. All right, Disney. <laughs> Disney Disney watching us and making their own merch. I see you. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, let's get into our other topic, which, Jess, this was something that you had mentioned to me to put in there because of the conversation that you and Annalise were having about this piece that you're working on. Right, Annalise? This... I mean, in between editing a film and being in and producing another film that's in post and being in production on another project, I keep trying to write this this article that I just can't seem to finish. And so I was like, ooh, maybe I can just talk about it on this yeah. podcast. So I'm going to talk about it as if it's this article that I'm writing. But then when the article never comes out, no one's going to fault me for it because they're going to be like, <laughs> oh, no, this one time she went on a podcast and she told us about it. So we don't need to read anything. There you go. That's my setup. Go ahead. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> But yes, I'm writing a thing that may stay on my hard drive forever. Okay. So tell us about the thing. I keep, so I'm, what I'm thinking of a lot, and a lot of us are thinking about this, um, is this, this idea, this concept of fairy tales in the time of fascism and the ways that we relate to villainy and, uh, and villain tropes 
and um, and how we do that at different historical times, right? Because all stories are culturally contextual and we only experience a story in the world that we are also actually living in. Uh, mm-hmm. And I see this happening a lot in Star Wars fandom um, and increasingly, and I feel like, you know, as we talk about the, these months ramping up to the Rise of Skywalker, this seems like a conversation. Is it a conversation? This seems like a, a thing I see on, I see people yelling about. <laughs> it's not really a conversation. <laughs> I see people yelling about this. Um, and I myself have gotten sort of swept up into, like I've had my own deeply reactive moments. Mm-hmm. around the ways that we personally relate to characters and stories and then the ways that we take our personal connection to these things and turn them around and sometimes purposefully sometimes quite inadvertently um police others <laughs> and mm-hmm. or um yuck other people's yum or do a lot of like kind of interesting things with um, social skills to, um, <laughs> to, to, you know, kind of take care of the vulnerable parts of us that are being spoken to in a story um, while reacting to the way a person might have a different experience of the same story. Does that make sense? Was that a, that was a really long sentence. Oh, no, yeah. Can you see why this article hasn't been published? <laughs> this is why the article nope. doesn't exist. The whole article is just that. It's just paragraph long sentences just in a loop. Someone hire me. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it, it's, it's these two things, like it's this first, this idea um, that comes from my own experience of the way that we relate to villainy and particularly, like I'm thinking about it in Star Wars terms, but it works in all kinds of terms, right? Um, that we, A, I think we really enjoy a villain when they are, um, when they're hot. Um, and we particular, and this only works for men, right? Women do not get this. Women never get to be the hot and redeemable yeah. villain. That is mm-hmm. not a category that is available to us. So we're just talking about dudes here. Yeah. Um, but I think about, you know, I think Spike and Loki are the two that kind of come to mind. And Angel, I don't, I'm, I, Loki is the hot one of that group by my subjective standards. But like, <laughs> these are, these are like villains and folks. Right. And, and, you know, and I think we see a lot of this with Kylo, where there's a sense of just like, no, no, I find this villain hot. And also I have created an entire mythology around the like, you know, way that this is a redeemable villain that would not be the case if Wally Shawn were playing them. God bless Wally Shawn. But like we have, <laughs> right, <laughs> we, we, we are definitely attaching some like, um, yeah, we're attaching hotness to the redeemability of villainy. Um, but that a lot of this comes back to Orlando, Celebration Orlando. All of my epiphanies happen at Celebration. So <laughs> Celebration Orlando, I was at Galactic Nights at Disney World. And I was, um, really dressed like just a like a stone rebel freak like I had so it was like you went to the closet and you put every rebel affiliated thing you have on at the same time it was a lot of look and but you're Disney World so you're like I can totally run around being a woman in my mid-40s wearing this particular look so I'm like really ridiculously dressed and waiting for my picture with Chewbacca or Kylo Ren I don't know who but I'm waiting in line and these these bears right gay bears dressed as Ewoks, so they're doubling down. They're gay bears Love dressed it. as Ewoks are in line with me. And I'm like, gays, I see you, you see me, let's all have, you know, because I'm feeling the kinship. And that's really cute. Cute for now. And then they're like, oh, are you 501st, right? Oh, no. And I'm telling you, this is a cautionary tale that I have learned from. So I'm going to, and I said, I did a horrible thing. So they were like, oh, are you 501st? And I was like, look at me, do I look 501st, right? Because I am covered in rebel starbirds 
and you know, <laughs> I'm clearly flagging for the rebellion. So I'm like, do I look like 501st? Mm -hmm. And then I, because I couldn't stop myself and I'd had a couple of drinks earlier and also Anthony Daniels had come up and touched me in a very appropriate <laughs> manner, very appropriately on the shoulder while I was drinking a gin and tonic. So all of that had happened, it was a little mm -hmm. loose. And I was like, I, I am not, I'm really, I don't quite understand the appeal of it. I'm sure some people enjoy dressing up as Nazis, that's not me. And one of the gay bears rolled his sleeve up and showed me his TK number tattoo. And I immediately wanted to just like fall into the ground where I was just like, wow, that was a dick thing to say. Like that was such a like really thoughtless thing to say that was accurate to my own experience, right? Which is particularly with the first order. I had like really strong story associations, but I just like really stomped on a thing that this person is clearly really passionate about in a way that's like, quite serious actually mm -hmm. and it was this moment where I was like oh no that's such a and people have done this to me actually quite a lot where if I tweet or write about something that suggests that um there's something interesting about bad guys there's just a flippant like oh I guess you love genocide then or I guess I guess yeah, yeah I guess sure if you think Nazis are great and of course it's you know infinitely more complex than all of that but if from a psychological perspective we look at the difference between content and process. The content is that stories have symbolism and that symbolism is overdetermined and subjective. And I would argue that there is symbolism that is in this day and age in particular, quite directly and overtly linked to things like neo-fascism and white supremacy and we have like literal actual Nazis in the street. We, are, we have no shortage of that mm -hmm. particular phenomenon occurring in culture. That is a particular sort of villainy, right? That we, we recognize. But story villainy is a thing that has existed as long as humans have been painting on cave walls. That that's mm -hmm. a part of the human condition and that story villainy is overdetermined. We can assign it a variety of different meanings. Um, it's abstract. And if, and one person's meaning is not another person's meaning. So my experience of the First Order as being a kind of clear, like symbolic Third Reich-ish sort of organization might not be another person's experience of it. And that mm -hmm. the process is one of saying, look, we can have different experiences of the same story. We can't have different experiences of, of, of white supremacy and neo-fascism, right? We can't have different experiences of Charlottesville. There are actually mm -hmm. objective truths happening there because they're not fictional stories. They're the real world that we're living right. in. And they become actually life or death, like literally life or death situations where we, we must have strong stances. There is not room for multi multiple or nuanced experiences of the same thing. Mm -hmm. But story time isn't that time. And I think that the stakes get really high when we're in those moments where we're acutely feeling it in reality and our story time starts feeling like too close to the bone or our reality is too much to process. And story time is a thing we can get our hands around and say, look, no, this is, this is not it. The other thing that happened that was celebration related was at Celebration London. Um, when we first arrived, there were all of these um, people dressed as stormtroopers taking pictures with folks who were on their hands and knees with their hands behind their head with guns pointed mm -hmm. at them. And coming from the United States, where there is such a culture of police brutality and of people being mm -hmm. murdered by police. To see um, police characters taking joyous pictures of this particular act of violence was just entirely too much for me and I couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And of course, and I had a really, really strong emotional reaction around a thing that was people dressing up in costumes and doing a thing. They were clearly enacting something different than I was experiencing. Two truths Mm -hmm. happening at the exact same time. Um, But it was a lot easier for me to be able to get my hands around that instance than it is, um, you know, the police, the prison industrial complex and Ferguson. And these Mm -hmm. things are just like, yeah, this is this is the terrifying reality that we live in. And so it's bringing that nuanced appreciation that our stories, it, it's a both and. It is okay to have really strong negative associations with villainy. That is actually what they're there for. But mm-hmm. that there's a part of that that's also giving room for people who are finding something useful in stories of villainy to be having a different experience than you are. And to be able to cultivate our ability to like, take care of each other's love of story as something distinct and different from the way that we interact with the real world around us. Linked, right? Like, absolutely, if a person's IRL behavior is, um, you know, harmful, I'm going to have conversations about that. But, mm-hmm. but story is a different space, and it gets to be, I think, examined in a different way. So, um I'm just like kind of looking at like really popular villains, like in most recent pop culture, like Snape Mm. from Harry Potter, um, Loki um, from Marvel, and then Vader and potentially Kylo Ren. And there's this idea of these are redeemable Mm. villains. And so there's a lot of like, like this romanticism around them where people seem to um, find a part of themselves in these villains and there's that like hope that they find redemption mm-hmm. the way that these characters have found redemption or at least they they um I, they want to identify with that do you feel like there's a difference between like these redeemable villains and like the ones like Turkin mm-hmm. or the emperor mm-hmm. <laughs> you know because i have a really huge fascination with palpatine and Tarkin and krennic and I also have a fascination with the redeemable villains too, but. Um... Well, I mean, first of all, right. And someone, someone will take exception to this, but I think that we can look at Palpatine and we can look at like young Anakin and, um, and Kylo Ren and be like, wow, these guys don't look the same. So this is leading into my like hot villains. <laughs> we, we, we have an easier time um, redeeming right. mopey brunette boys than we do the, um, the folks that have been, who don't look like that. Um, I think that villainy serves a few different psychological purposes. I think that it's got, separate from redeemability, it's got a catharsis um, quality to it. I think it's important to be able to have places we can fantastically imagine the unrestrained id doing the things that it wants Mm -hmm. to do. Um, and it's actually, that's a sign of psychological health and well-being that we want to do that in fantasy and not in reality, right? Stories give us permission mm-hmm. to fantasize about those things. And that a, a character like Tarkin in particular, right? Like Tarkin is a really compelling bad guy. Um, and the, and, and Krennic is also, I think, a completely compelling bad guy. And we're, and we're meant to kind of lean in and imagine things from those perspectives. And they don't ever redeem themselves and they don't win. <laughs> right. But we get to yeah. we get to really like enjoy them as bad guys while they're happening. Hannibal Lecter falls into that category for me. Right. Um, yeah. Where you're just sort of like, wow, what would it be like to be that universally, you know, kind of like wicked, but also charismatic and smart. Like those kinds of villains are often soft spoken. 
right? They're, they're, they've got like yeah. a kind of wonderful slithery quality to them. Um, so I think it's useful to have a thing we can just project ourselves into to imagine what's it like to have unlimited power and be so good at manipulating the world around you. Um, or what would it be like to be in the presence of that? Or what's it like to just witness that? Um, Hannibal Lecter being another really great example of that. Like we love watching this diabolical psychopathological cannibal because he is such a like amazing character to watch. Clearly, we are not endorsing psychop. We're not endorsing psychopathy yeah. <laughs> or cannibalism, but we love watching this character. When you put it on paper like that, it sounds it's like wild that we are fascinated with a character like this. But it's so true. He's so compelling Absolutely. on screen. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have fantastical spaces to explore those things. Um, and then I think redemption is a different psychological set of needs that has to do with fallibility and this notion that we can, in fact, utterly lose our way, become unhinged, cause harm and find a way back from that. Mm -hmm. And that those stories, mm -hmm. and, and this is actually incredibly important to me as a person who works in forensics, um, to say like, we, we, it actually doesn't work to just like blow all of our villains out of an airlock. We, we do actually need to do something with them. And the notion of redemption is critically important. What, what fairy tales and fantasy don't give us is what that process actually looks like in real life. Mm -hmm. They give us the horrible and they give us the, the end. Um, they don't give us the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. They don't give us um, reparative justice. That's messy and it doesn't lend itself very well to, you know, a, an action film. But I think that there's a lot of reasons why you need that. And again, if you're holding fairy tales to the standards of what we need in reality, they're going to crumble and fall apart because it is not, you know, it's fake and it's in yeah. space. It's not the thing. Um, <laughs> But when we're looking at these things as archetypes, which is what story is, like stories there to maintain these like symbolic beats, then I think there's a lot to tap in there. And there's a good conversation to be had around like, actually, that's not that's not enough redemption for me. Um, mm -hmm. Darth Vader's redemption has always fallen flat for me because oh, I'm yeah. extremely Leia identified. Because when Darth Vader mm -hmm. revealed himself to be Luke's father, when I saw that movie in 1983, um, no, 1980, how old was I? I was seven. Um, and what was healing for me about Vader being Luke's father, and I never doubted it for a second, right? I, I didn't leave the theater thinking, is he or isn't he? I knew that was the case. And it gave me permission to be a hero and to be loved by others, even though my I was related to someone who caused horrible harm and was terrible. Like, it was so liberating mm -hmm. and useful. And in the last scene of Jedi, when he's like threatening Leia and then Luke forgives him and he gives that closure, I was like, whatever, bitch, because Leia's <laughs> off there. He killed her family and her entire planet. She got no closure from him whatsoever. And like, to me, that's just like, whatever. There was no accountability. Um, so like my reality standards yeah. can creep in there. And that's my own personal experience of Vader's redemption. And that is mm -hmm. not going to be the same as someone else's experience because we bring our vulnerable parts to these stories. Okay, so the problem that I run into a lot in my activist space of, you know, promoting representation and inclusion in entertainment, because that is like our educational mm -hmm. medium for the mm -hmm. country and the most of the Western world, um, is that a lot of people throw the it's fake and in space argument at me for representation. Obviously, that's not the same thing as like, connecting with a character like on a psychological level but there is that element of balance of like how far is too far at, uh, taking you know something that's fantastical and really embracing that and like kind of embracing that darkness and that um that corruption and whatever else 
because there's going to be political political ramifications in in this in the context no matter what because this you know entertainment and storytelling is done in the context of society and everything and so I guess what I'm wondering is like where where does that balance lie like between it's vacant in space and oh this is like a commentary on society because it's a story in the context of society leaving the dock at hyperspace, laser swords, things that make actual sounds in the vacuum of space, right? These are (laughs) fake and in space. The production company is not fake, nor is it in space. Hollywood is neither fake nor is it in space. So the the systems that are creating the media are not fake and in space. They are in fact real. And this is what's more complex than 280 characters. Uh, And I think this is what people feel when they look at media, Um, particularly when you're well represented in media, because when you're represented in media, everything becomes kind of neutral and invisible. And you can say, oh no, I'm just relating to this story. Um, I'm relating to Darth Vader being redeemed because he looks at his son and his son forgives him and he saves him and it's a whole thing. And when you're a woman, you're looking at that being like, yeah, he blew up his daughter's whole ass planet and she didn't get anything out of that. And I'm relating to a different character in this. And then if you're a person mm-hmm. of color, you're like, yeah, no, you're not giving me anything. <laughs> you're, you're not giving me a <laughs> single character in this entire story that I can actually just see myself in. So I'm doing all this extra work. I love Tracy Deanne Walker has this whole kind of concept that she's written about called narrative extraction. It's about the work that marginalized audiences do to connect with a story that audiences Mm -hmm. who are just default represented don't have to do. Um, But what's complex is that we have our personal experiences of the story that are culture bound and about the fiction. And then there is the the system, the media system, the capitalist um, system that is creating the media. And those are not fake, nor are they in space, and they are absolutely available for critique. That is, how is the story told? Who is telling the story? And we've been having that conversation for as long as there have been stories as well, right? I think about Virginia Woolf and this notion mm-hmm. of Shakespeare's sister and like, who, who have we heard these stories from for millennia? Who gets to be the storyteller? Who tells the story? Mm-hmm. And that conversation happens alongside the conversations about the, the magical, fictional, metaphorical aspects of the story. And they overlap and they intertwine. Um, and... I think that a part of where we become good citizens of fandom is in our ability to hold a both and and say, oh, yeah, I, I saw this film and it did everything for me and I felt myself in it and I was very, very connected. And this person who experiences marginalization in a way that I don't did not have the same experience as I do and in fact felt excluded or felt otherized because of it. And that experience is really valid. And also on a systems level, I wanna make sure that like media is being made in a way that doesn't do that. I can still personally love the story, but I'm gonna do it while I wanna make sure that the studios that are making these stories are being responsive to the way audience works. Because this isn't um, about giving everybody a cookie (laughs) <laughs> this is this is about white supremacy yeah. and um, institutionalized misogyny. This is about mm-hmm. systems that provide employment to only specific groups and provide access to only specific groups. Um, and that that's of critical importance in media. And, and, you know, I think that I am of the personal opinion that art is a mirror and not an anvil mm-hmm. at its heart. I think art reflects the culture around it more than it shapes it. Um, and I, and, and it, it, I, I, I think we don't get to really create things that absolutely weren't there simply through art. I think the seeds have to already exist in the culture and be pushed into. 
Um, so when the art looks incredibly homogenous in terms of race and gender and ability and nation of origin, sexual orientation, what I am seeing is the ways that the structures like incredibly heterosexist, homophobic, transphobic, white supremacist, misogynist structures live in the studios making the film. Yeah. So of course I want that to change because mm -hmm. I want it to change at the studios and at gas stations and in schools mm -hmm. and in every single facet of American culture. That I think hard for folks who think of inclusion and representation as being somehow surface level or just about showing up and not about how representation isn't about like, getting, I don't know, like being role modeled. It's like fundamentally permission to exist in the world. Yeah. Oh, I love you, Annalise. <laughs> um, I feel like I have something else to bring up with this, um, but it's not as important as like race and stuff like that. <laughs> Don't say that. Well, I mean, okay. So like the thing that... I mean, we can agree that dismantling white yes. supremacy is the most important thing. And like, I, we can just be like, let's, uh -huh. let's put that as priority number one. And then everything else is going to yep. be there too. But yep. we know what priority yep. number one is, you know, go. I think something that I've always struggled with, with this kind of concept of, you know, like there's some parts that are, that are just story. And there are some parts that are like, yes, this is a reflection of our real world is Kylo Ren. <laughs> Kylo Ren is where I have the biggest difficulty. And yeah. I... I've talked about this a couple of times, like on Twitter, and I think I talked about this a little bit on um, the mental health episode that I did with Sapphic Skywalkers. But I personally think that Kylo reflects a lot of misogyny and even tactics of abuse and domestic violence within the real world. And I think part of that is because that has been something that I as a person have experienced there there are like parts there are literally specific phrases that Kylo Ren says that reminds me of things that my ex would say to me you're nothing but not to me like that is word for word what something my ex would have said to me and so like sometimes I have that really difficult time being like, okay, but that's my experience. And I'm kind you know, like I'm putting my experience onto that, but that's not everybody else's. But I, I have very dear friends who look at Kylo Ren and relate to him, um, especially in terms of like what you were saying of, you know, I've done some shitty things. And so as Kylo Ren, he has the ability to redeem himself. And so do I. Um, and I think that's so important for people to be able to have. But then it becomes difficult to kind of have this conversation Yes, people can relate to Kylo Ren, and that doesn't mean, you know, those people relate to Kylo Ren, and they are not my abuse. Separate that for myself. I feel like there are conversations that should be had of the way he talks to Ray, of the way he interacts with Ray, and how that is very similar to a lot of things that, that you know, like I see within domestic violence, like relationships with domestic violence or inner partner violence. I, I just feel like those diff those conversations are really difficult to have on Twitter because if you say like I have this experience of Kylo Ren and here is also the real world connection it gets people very upset <laughs> yeah it does and I've seen that right like I think it speaks to how deeply personal we are with story right because when we are seeing something from our lives or seeing something that represents us or the world around us in story it is often connecting with deeply vulnerable and personal yeah. parts of ourselves. And those stakes get really, really high. 
Um, I also am a domestic violence survivor and I have a really similar mm -hmm. experience to that character. Like I hear you talking and I, mm -hmm. I share a lot of that experience just to kind of locate myself in the conversation. I think that one of the things that we miss in social media conversations where we don't get to actually just kind of be with each other, which really helps increase how kind we are, <laughs> right? When we're not buying a keyboard um, is uh, this notion mm -hmm. of process over content. So on a content level, everyone is right, right? Like you are completely and fully mm -hmm. correct in your reading of an understanding of the story. And someone who has a different experience of the story personally is deeply and entirely correct, right? So like people who are like, oh, this story really brings up, like I see things mm -hmm. in my life in this interaction and when Ray closed the Falcon door, I uh -huh. like made a sound in my theater. Like I had, I was yeah. so excited for that moment. Um, <laughs> even though I love him as a villain, I love that character. Like the character is like everything. I think it's just like so great. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, fucking kick his ass and close the door on him. Like that just makes me so, so happy. Um, I think that what we have a hard time with is this process of letting things that feel diametrically mm -hmm. opposed coexist mm -hmm. and both be correct. And to give ourselves and give each other space to have that and be thoughtful and gentle and caring with each other's soft spots and vulnerabilities. Um, and of course, and this kind of gets to the question around representation as well, I think when folks experience marginalization, when people are, for instance, survivors of domestic violence or abuse, there's a way in which it's like, oh, we're going to put some of these things to the front mm -hmm. of the line, right? Like, I really like this story. I'm really experiencing the like, sharp nasty boot of white supremacy okay we're gonna put <laughs> uh -huh. you ahead of me in line we're gonna we're gonna listen to that first that that's really important um i really like this fictional story it's like super romantic and i love it that's great you can totally fully have that i don't quite have that experience because he mm -hmm. really reminds me of my abuser like okay yeah. thank you for letting me know that like what do you need around yeah. that right it's a both and we don't we're not trying to get each other to either, each other's places um and I had this experience because I, I was struggling, um, I was struggling with, with Raylo as a ship. Um, and I was going into all of my like, um, you know, deeply, I'm gonna call it paternalistic because I would like to root it in misogyny. <laughs> I made all my paternalistic protective spaces where I was just like, ladies, I want you to fantasize mm -hmm. about something better. And then the psychologist in me was like, okay, but like, what are you clearly experiencing a thing other than what women are experiencing? So mm -hmm. what are women experiencing? And so in the spirit of the scientific method, I went on AO3 and I read a whole bunch of Raylo porn. <laughs> which, which, let me tell you, arguably I could have ended with a couple, but I did not. I read a whole bunch of Raylo porn because it's great, right? And because all the things that trigger me on screen with that relationship absolutely don't exist in like good Raylo smut because Raylo, all, because all fan fiction, like all women's erotica is puts all the agency as women mm -hmm. um, storytellers. And you know, I love women, like I love women <laughs> and I love women, right? And so like anything where women are like storytellers, I'm gonna get behind. And reading the ways that <laughs> women write this character are endlessly mm -hmm. delightful to me. Um, and they're delightful to me as a queer woman and also like seeing queer women's particular like erotic, like sexualization mm -hmm. and objectification of Kylo Ren and Adam <laughs> Driver, honestly, um, is also just like infinitely amusing to me. And it was really liberating to be able to be like, mm -hmm. oh, great. Okay, I see what you're going for here. Your Kylo Ren is a yeah. totally different Kylo Ren than mine. 
And of course, that's the feeling that you're having. Of course, that's the end game that you want. Um, and of course, that's what you're seeing on screen, because one of the things that makes Star Wars a really good story that's lasted as long as it has is that it is essentially a scrim, right? It's a series of beautifully positioned panels upon which we can read the story we need. And it's always been that. Like, it's gotten more specific, I think, as the years have gone on, but especially the original trilogy. And I think also in huge amounts, the relationships in the prequels were available for audience to project themselves mm -hmm. into. And women are particularly skilled at relational storytelling mm -hmm. and relational story projecting. Mm -hmm. It's like our superpower. And so it was soothing for me to be able to say, oh, right, like y'all are actually fantasizing about stuff that mm -hmm. makes a ton of sense to me. Um, and you're writing about it great. And, you know, like you've got like all these wonderful, like, you know, especially the, the in-universe, the canon stuff, like all these great Easter eggs and you like totally know the story inside and out. So as a Star Wars fan, <laughs> I'm like really digging you. But also like all of the like smut conceits, I'm just like applauding. I'm just like sitting there being like, yes, <laughs> ladies, get it. Like that's. Mm -hmm. Life to me. Um, and I realized that like my feelings and then you know I'll, I'll rewatch The Last Jedi and I'm like, yeah, no, fuck you, dude. Like it's just I'm like, I'm still right there with it. I'm like, I this is like he is a villain and he is there for a reason, and they're gonna have to do something pretty magical with the storytelling to redeem mm -hmm. things for me um in this next chapter. But it's it's being able, I think there's something really liberating about being able to see, like, okay, why mm -hmm. is that? What is that for you? And it's important yeah. that it is mutual, right? Because like, we're all right when it comes, like we are, you are correct in whatever your experience of a character is. Um, and it is a part of why it's, it's been useful for me to be actually, you know, I, I love Raylos. I love them like as storytellers and as a fandom and as art creators. Um, mm -hmm. Kylux is my ship. Like that's the thing that like, I want to like look at the most. It's, it's sadly better visual art than writing all the time because they don't give you there, there aren't as much, um, there aren't as many cultural mm -hmm. tropes available for plucking with gay stories, Kelsipries. <laughs> um, but I want to see that mutual love and respect of like, of course you get to relate to this in any way you want to. I have my own personal story. You get to have yours. They get to be different. Yeah. We are both correct. And that process is the thing that I think we lack a lot in fandom, which becomes a real zero-sum game. Um, and and you know we know this. This is this is this is kind of a if mm -hmm. you're not with me, you're against me. Only if it feels in absolutes. We've been given the model that this is not actually a good way of doing things. Um, that it's it is useful, I think, to be able to hold each other compassionately mm -hmm. and lovingly. Yeah. Well, I think that we're we have a hard time with that because we are behind screens. We're not or we're I mean, we're behind a screen now, but we are having mm -hmm. like a verbal conversation about this where we're able to give each other space and hold space for each other. And mm -hmm. there, you don't have that same back and forth. In it's hard to hear a person say, mm -hmm. I don't like this thing you like without taking it as you don't yeah. get to like the thing you like. That's it. And and both sides will do this. Like I see people questioning essentially the bodily autonomy of women who have ships that mm -hmm. are considered problematic. Like, you know, problematic relationships are the crux of all erotica. So like that's gonna happen. Like there's no heat if it's not problematic. Nobody wants to sit and read about a like deeply communicative mutual relationship that is boring. That's watching things right? we want to read about the stuff that's like tortured and angsty. We have the whole thing. It's called literature. It's based on that. Right? 
like business storytelling. Of oh course, we want the stories that have um, this thing. And I've been reading all of this like fan fiction from the 70s and 80s as a part of my, and I'm using the air quotes you can't see right now, research on looking for ladies. Women have been writing hurt, comfort, smut stories since like, you know, mm-hmm. since Spock, since the beginning of all of this. This is our birthright as, as mm-hmm. fan women. Um, but that it's that it's important to be able to say like women get to fantasize about whatever they want to fantasize about and part of women's bodily autonomy is getting to fantasize about whatever they want to fantasize about and we're not going to judge or get down on women for that and women get to have boundaries around what they are told is sexy or ideal ideally romantic women get to push back against role models of ideal romanticism that they find oppressive or marginalizing Mm -hmm. both of these things are true and that's, I think, what gets left out of the kind of zero-sum game ship wars is this idea that like, we can't all actually be correct and that we are, uh, we are better, um, we're better sisters when we're looking out for each other and mm-hmm. saying, yeah, of course, I've got you. Like, I get that that isn't your story and I am yeah. like fiercely here for you. And also, like, I get that you love that story and I, I'm totally yeah. here for you. Imagine if like, we took all of our effort that we have like, into quote unquote ship wars and like putting it back on the dudes who tell us that we can't fantasize about whatever ship that we mm. want. Like imagine the power we have. I mean, what cracks me up is this like notion that somehow women are sullying <laughs> genre with our fixation mm. on relationships. And I'm like, you know, I love a space explosion probably more than the next guy. Like I'm really, mm. I, I'm here for the explosions. Um, and like also as a queer woman, I'm extra here for the explosions <laughs> because like I'm never given anything I want in the romance. Like the romance is off and like I'm not mm-hmm. into Han and Leia. It was disappointing to me. Um, and like as a kid, I was like really Han identified <laughs> because I was like, okay, I guess that's what you gotta do. Um, like I would like to be the one that sweeps the, the princess off her feet. And like these, like Han and Lando were like my role models and all of that. But like that, and that's a problem. So we can like <laughs> analyze that if you would like. Sorry, sorry, everyone I've dated. <laughs> that Han and Lando were my were my early childhood role models of how to woo women. But um, but I don't think that um, yeah, like it, 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 there's something uniquely misogynist about the way that women's um interest in relationship dynamics, particularly young women's interest in relationship dynamics, is devalued in such a rigorous way when somehow knowing the name of the exhaust port on the Millennium Falcon is like reified as a special kind of fandom. Yes. You can't see me, but I'm like snapping right now in agreement. Like, yes. (laughs) Like I, I I jokingly posted about my, my new uh, rare pair ship, which we'll get into briefly just to wrap things up with some fun. But like, I'm only part one, I'm only through part one of alphabet squadron. So like no spoilers here. But, like, my new rare pair of ship is Will Lark and Luke Skywalker. And I was like, I am driving the Will Lark, Luke Skywalker rare pair train. And somebody was just like, mm, I don't think so. And I'm like, just let me live my life. Like, <laughs> let me put myself where I don't get to see myself. And, and even though I'm doing that with men, but, like, y- you know, like, I'm fucking goddamn it. <laughs> 
Well, and this has to do with a bit of online etiquette as well, right? So there's a way in which it's important that we create spaces for each other. And so it's important if you have a, it's important to not insert ourselves into places where folks are really celebrating a thing to just go in and like poop all over it. <laughs> and, and it's hard to know sometimes, like I've definitely been in social conversations where I've been pooping all over a thing. And then after the fact, someone's like, actually, that was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ooh, sorry about that. Like it totally gets to be your favorite. And I had lots of critical analysis about it. Um, sometimes when my critical analysis is like prefaced on, for instance, fridging the first black woman speaking mm-hmm. in a film in the first third, I feel like that's actually really important mm-hmm. should be taken into consideration when a thing is your fave. And like, I'd like you to be able to hold both of those things at once. Um, but you know, that we don't have to insert ourselves particularly in comments, right? Like it's, it's just not the time. Like we're on social media to try to sort of reach out yeah. and connect. And if we're talking about like makeup, made makeup, made believe, um, make believe stories of people <laughs> getting it on, we are creating subjective territory. So let people have their subjective territory. And similarly, <laughs> when someone says like, "Oh, this person's a villain," mm-hmm. which they clearly are, let's not give them death threats, right? When someone's like, "Oh, yeah, this is like clearly this person who has been told to us is the bad guy, and we are not supposed to admire," let's like let that fact stand. Mm-hmm. When, you know, there's a poll that's around, like, do you really want to see these two folks get together? And the answer is no. And your answer is yes. You can just be like, all right, all the more important for me to find my, find my group, make sure that I've got, and let's not seek out the groups that don't agree with us so that we can like (laughs) poke them with things. Like it is, it is okay for us to have different, (laughs) um, different likes and loves. This would be a bit like folks who aren't into Star Wars whatsoever (laughs) coming into fandom and just being like why are you such an idiot why do you like this and we just be like why are you even on star wars twitter we're here Uh. to talk about space wizards so there's like these are just like general social skills (laughs) that i think are um they're transferable they're help you can use them at work you can use them at your kid's school like they they work really well i love that you've taught us two things (laughs) general social skills and go go read some some raylo quality it is these ladies are contributing to fandom and i would like to tip my hat to them and say thank you Post-production is really hard, and it's really nice having something to tap into at the end of the day. Love it. For hashtag research. Um, Speaking of research, let's end on, like, a fun note, because this conversation has been fucking phenomenal. I feel like this is going to be one of our best episodes yet, Um, but it's also been a little heavy at some points. Um, So let's, let's do something fun for the end. What are what are some of y'all's like queer Star Warships? I'm I'm like Finpo like from the start. Like that was the first like and it's I know it feels just very mainstream and kind of um boring at this point, but one of the things I love about all the um, porn I'm reading for research <laughs> is that Raylo's respect <laughs> Finpo, and they are always a couple in all of those stories, and it makes me very happy. And they're usually like married and madly in love and like wicked domestic, <laughs> and I love it. Um, and so I feel like that's, yeah, like that's like solidly and hugely there for me. Um, and then one of my like historic things as a queer woman, I think, is that I'm, I was, I feel like I was raised by gay men and I was raised certainly by the only representation that I got in film being mm-hmm. of men. Like lesbians in cinema in the 80s and 90s was like this plot where you would like look at each other across a room for 90 minutes. There'd be like some angst. No one would have sex and then mm-hmm. one of you would die. And that's like every <laughs> lesbian movie in the 80s 
80s and 90s, except for the hunger where you have really, really good sex and then one of you dies. Uh, and like, that's it, right? Um, and so it's hard for me to even imagine where that gets to happen among women, yeah. which is like so sad for me. And I'm hoping Abby is going to <laughs> chime in and give me inspiration about who I should be shipping for the ladies <laughs> in Star Wars. We we talked a little bit about this um, yeah. last week when we had Sapphic Skywalkers on, because we talked a lot about having to insert ourselves into fandom, which we also talked a lot about on here. And so that ends up being like shipping women who have never spoken so far in canon. Um, <laughs> I mean, we know from the pictures we got from Celebration that Ray and Rose will eventually speak, but like Ray Rose is one of my big ships, and yet, mm. as far as we have seen in the movies, like they haven't spoken. Or like Ray and Jessica Pava, huge ship, um, or at least in my experience with interacting with people, they've never met a day in their life. Jessica Pava isn't in episode eight; she's probably not going to be in episode nine, which is a travesty. The only one, and and I think all of us. Uh, myself and the Sapphic Skywalkers agreed with the only one that we feel like could conceivably be uh, happening within canon is Leia and Amalek once upon a time. Yeah, the princess Leia, princess of Al- Alderaan, actually like firmly says right. that's not the case, right? Because there's that whole scene where Holdo's yeah. like, why would you choose? And Leia's like, I'm going to come out as straight now, which was a little like, really? And you had to like actually like just put that in there? Like you couldn't leave that one open? But all right. <laughs> You see, I I agree with I think um, I don't remember if it was Emma or Lynn that said this last episode, mm. but um, an older yeah, yeah, I think it was Emma because she was talking about how she projects onto it as do I. Like I I very much so experience of not accepting the fact that I was queer until I was in my twenties, and then in my case it was even I don't know it was like it was a weird situation because I have been in a monogamous relationship with this man for eight years and like let's be real here like I've known I've I'm bi since I was a wee one but you know didn't accept it until I was about 20 so four years later here I am but this kind Emma talked about this kind of idea that Leia did either accept or recognize it until later in her life got jiggy with it with Amelin I think I kind of like this notion too of like at some point Leia's just like these men are fucking useless <laughs> like every last one of them especially like, really like it's just like y'all men are yeah. weak and that she has this moment yeah. of just being like I'm done well, I'm I'm like you know I'm making other life choices <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's leveling up <laughs> no no disrespect but to just be like you know like she can have held a if she held a, a candle for Han totally reasonable um, and then, you know, he's gone and she's like, all mm-hmm. right, then what's next? Vagina, that's what's next. I'm, and, you know, certainly like I'm a yeah. huge Afro stan. Like I, I, I guess it's sad for me that we get all of our representation mm-hmm. not on screen and in books. And then also I'm really grateful to have it in the books. And Afra is um, maybe the closest we get to that redeemable. Like, she's, is she a villain? Is she just like really resourceful and like making the strategic decisions for the world that she's living in? Um but, you know, also, like, I think every queer woman is pretty used to saying, well, here are the people, here are the women that I love. I love some Catwoman, some <laughs> Ursula, some Harley Quinn. Like, we all, we're given the villains because that's the only time our sexuality yes. even glimmers as a mm-hmm. possibility. You know, mm-hmm. the evil queer woman. But, you know, God bless a evil. Yeah, like, step on me, evil queer woman. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, like, these are my role models. So, again, sorry to everyone I've dated. <laughs> I feel like everyone, you, we've, we've talked a lot. There's been a very personal, 
<laughs> a lot of personal yes. disclosure. <laughs> oh yeah, we got we're we're getting to know Annalise. This is what happens when you bring a glass of rosé to the podcast. I'm like, I am into my third glass of wine. <laughs> And I am just, I'm having a blast right now. <laughs> Jess, what about you? Um, I am firmly Pofin. And I know it's like, like Annalise said, boring, mainstream, but I, <laughs> yeah. I just want them to be happy <laughs> and together. And on like, I just, oh, yes. Oscar Isaac mm. is just a beautiful man. And honestly, he could be with anyone on screen in the Star Wars universe and I would be happy, but I would, I really mm -hmm. just love the way that him and John Boyega play off each other and just, they're meant to be together. And if yeah. they're not, I'm going to be very upset, but whatever, Lucasfilm. <laughs> but no, I, I love that um, Amelin, like older Amelin Leia thing. And I didn't realize that that's why I loved it when Emma was talking about mm -hmm. it but that is why I love it because that's mm -hmm. such a common story yeah um, yeah no you're right in your community <laughs> and I really feel like Leia like yeah Leia's just like fuck all the guys but also I feel like she probably like had a really hard time just being able to like be herself with a lot of these people and I think Amelin is someone who's been around her for a very long time mm -hmm. and she was someone who she could be Leia with like Leia from Alderaan you know she like by the time she met Han her planet had already been destroyed and she was like this you know horribly traumatized person who has who had changed a lot and I think Amelin is the one who who could probably mm -hmm. who has recognized that she's changed and is still there and there's mm -hmm. still a warmth there and you can see that on screen I think too and then and then Kyla <laughs> that's a Kyla purely sexual <laughs> that's just for the pictures <laughs> those are like really seriously though the fan that's art just for looking fan art is the excellent. fan art oh yeah, and can we just say that is the one non-problematic ship? Like I feel like <laughs> it's fault it's faultless. <laughs> like come at me with what you think is wrong with Kyla. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that ship. I dare you to be in any way anti Kyla. It can't happen. I after my long lecture about how we should all hold each other's differences. Um, <laughs> if you're anti Kyla, I see you and it is okay. Um, but I'm just saying like that's a that's a it's an easy ship to love. It's an easy ship to sail. I realized the other day that I have Kylux cats. So I have a ginger cat and a black and white cat. Oh, <laughs> rename them now. Rename them now. And Abby, you do too. <laughs> Amazing. Just, I think, I think you're gay. I think you're secretly gay. Yeah. If you and Abby have matching cats, I'm just saying it's a sign. <laughs> Did oh you hear God. me at the last episode? I was like, and Jess is unfortunately straight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jess, we're all like, so what happens is later in life, some women realize. I know. <laughs> I'm just at the point. We're just we're laying the bricks. We're paving a path for you, dear. We're paving a path. I'm at the same point where Abby is, where I've been in a, a, a um, monogamous relationship with a cis man for so long. I'm like, does it really matter? Like, it doesn't make a difference to me at this point. It does, absolutely. But like, even though I <laughs> love and adore Chris, boyfriend of the pod, um, like, uh, you know, I fucking love women. <laughs> And you know, identity is not the same as behavior, and and it's important that like, and women get stripped of this all the time. This so true. you know, yeah. and and also that's like one of the things that biphobia kind of like thrives on is this notion that we we don't see you unless you are behaving the way we expect you to. That's true. So. I have been indoctrinated with the patriarchy. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Paul Mall, if we're all soaking oh in it, God. it's okay. 
<laughs> Maybe this conversation will go differently. <laughs> you have an entire Pride Month, so like we, you have one more week. How many more weeks do you have to convert Jess oh on God. this podcast? I, I can only imagine like how red my face is right now. It's okay, Jess. You only have two people with psychology degrees, you know, talking to you. Oh man, why did I let you guys on here? <laughs> so this is something that I asked the oh, staffers last week, and then I decided without consulting Jess, that <laughs> this is going to be something that we ask every guest that we have on for our um, month of gay is why does Star Wars call to us, even though it doesn't always include us? Such a question, right? I mean, first of all, I think anyone who's marginalized has the experience of most things not calling to them. So I can say that like, right. this is a universal experience that you learn how to navigate. And then once you navigate it with one thing, you navigate it with everything. Um, but I do think that science fiction and fantasy as a genre for me has always had these, um, it, it has more room and possibility to be able to imagine myself because there's so many other impossible things that exist. Uh, and honestly, because even though growing up, there was just the one woman in the story and any story that I loved, there was only ever going to be one woman. So like I was still, that was, it was following all of the tropes that I was given. Um, and it was easy to imagine myself into that world and, and that kind of magic and possibility, I think especially when you're outside of whatever group is sort of taking care of the best, uh, is is really powerful. It's one of the ways that we actually imagine ourselves out of the margin. And it's ironic that we do it with media that so often replicates that experience of marginalization. And that's one of the superpowers that all queer and trans folks and folks of color and folks who like anybody who lives outside of the, the sort of like dominant group has that superpower. And um, and a story like Star Wars, I think, gives us a lot of spaces to be able to kind of fly that power. Hell yeah. Not because it's itself like deeply inherently queer or liberating, mm -hmm. but because we are deeply mm -hmm. powerful and able to make magic things happen out of stories. Fuck, I love that. Annalise, can you be on like every single? <laughs> yes. Can I please just drink wine and talk about <laughs> yeah. deep stuff, but also porn every night <laughs> because that <laughs> would be very soothing to me. Deep Let stuff, but also have porn. a byline. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> so, um, Lousy Beautiful Town can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean if you are a browser listener. And Annalise, where can the good people find you and um? your rants about possibly porn research and oh god see i've really signed myself up for a thing now this article is suddenly <laughs> taking a totally different turn it has become simply personal disclosure you can find me on twitter dr dr underscore ophelian which is impossible to spell so you should go to at looking for leia and you can link to me through there um, we're also looking for leia.com on the interwebs and all other places uh, you can find Lousy Beautiful Town at lbtpod you can send us an email at lousybeautifultownpod at gmail.com Abby, where can they find you? You can find me yelling about straight people uh, at Abby M. Cecilia. <laughs> and you can find me at Space Jess with four S's in the Jess. I don't know how to end this podcast because we've literally talked about everything under the sun, including me questioning my sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for listening. <laughs> Go read some smut. Treat yourself. <laughs> oh my god. Let me kick, let me kick Craig out.
This is Craig, everyone. I know it's very like <laughs> I'm kind of scared of Craig. <laughs> Craig actual or is Craig like a AI? He's a bot. He's a bot. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I know it's so weird. I'm so my mind is so blown like this. I'm so old. Like <laughs> you get a choice or is it just like you get a Craig? There's nothing. No, you it's get like a, a Derek. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's like a Derek. <laughs> it's like a Derek. He's just gonna be there. <laughs> Maximum Derek. <laughs> All right. Um, also, sorry, my dog is barking because oh, is that, I thought asshole. that was I thought that was a Chihuahua. I was like, oh no! And yeah, we're in a we're having a canned and boxed wine renaissance right now. How do you, you're drinking <laughs> wine and you can like recall <laughs> I'm that? I'm a easy. therapist. I'm supposed to be able to <laughs> listen and track. 